From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Implanting an Artificial Retina, Part 2. From my perspective at Stanford, where we developed this technology, is to push the resolution to its limit. This is Part 2 of my conversation with Daniel Palenker on the development of a functional photovoltaic retinal chip for the treatment of severe geographic atrophy. We pick up where we left off last time. Can I get you to describe the design of this study? Right. So the first study that was uh, conducted in Paris in France uh, was approved by, uh, you know, EC, um, CE mark, uh, European approval. And it was called feasibility study. So basically the goal was, first of all, to establish if surgery is safe, if chip is stable and there are no you know, side effects on a peripheral vision, because these patients have peripheral vision, they certainly don't want to damage it. And then uh, efficacy uh, of this uh, chip. So five patients were implanted. Uh, the first one actually got chip in the wrong place. It was inserted deeper than necessary into the choroid by mistake uh, because the first patient was done at the local anesthesia and she moved, she yanned actually in a very wrong moment when the surgeon was holding a chip in subretinal space, not yet released. So it went uh, deeper. The other patients were done all under uh, general anesthesia. And so they didn't move and everything went smoothly and uh, implant ended up in the right uh, you know, position, subretinal space. Uh, one. There are two ways to reattach retina. One is by uh, uh, fluid exchange, by providing perfluorocarbon and then replacing it with oil. And the other, that, and two patients were done this way, and the other is by replacing it with gas. The gas tamponade is uh, basically to reattach the retina, but for that uh, maneuver, patient has to sit face down for a few hours until the bubble kind of uh, presses the retina and disappears. So one of the, the first patient with this gas exchange did not follow the request of the nurse to sit face down. He stood up or uh, sat up and the chip actually shifted by two millimeters of the intended location. So he got it a little bit off access. And his performance later on was actually uh, lower because of that. It was kind of uh, perif- more peripheral. However, with our current, uh, 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 the first generation of tests was done with uh, augmented reality glasses, and I will describe the results. And the second generation of testing that started uh, literally about a month ago, uh, and the second trial that is now started in US will use the second generation of glasses, it's augmented reality glasses. Uh, It turns out that these glasses are much better, and it's much easier for patients to kind of find their screen relative to everything else they see in the room. And so performance actually, even with the, in the patient that had this a little, a little bit peripherally, improved to the level that every other patient now has. And the level, how we assess it is by acuity measurements of on lambda C, now on the ETDRS charts, uh, and uh, measuring the minimum feature, for example, in a bar orientation test, what's the minimum width of the bar, not just orientation. So what turns out that they see uh, that the minimum width of the bar is one pixel on retina. The minimum 
gap in Landel C, theoretically it is one pixel, you know, black, let's say, uh, in a white C, right? Um, they see it uh, uh, down to 1.1 pixel on average between uh, the patients. So it's only 10% below theoretical, you know, uh, sampling uh, density limit. And very consistent, the spread in the recent results, uh, not what we published, we published was a little worse because one patient with this peripheral placement of the chip performed worse, but now they're all at the same level. It, the spread between 1.1 pixel is only 0 0.07, so it's 7%. It's a very, very reproducible performance, which is very exciting and encouraging. Um, yeah, so the tests, as I mentioned, were, uh, in, in addition to just mapping the field and you know, showing that they do have responses to measure bar orientation and minimum width of the bar, and resolution as assessed by Lundell C and letters uh, acuity chart. You mentioned some um, some adverse events that occurred during during surgery, uh, choroidal placement of a chip, a chip that didn't wind up where where you wanted it. Were all of the adverse events attributable to the surgery, or were there any adverse events attributable to biocompatibility of the chip? Yeah, so uh, there was nothing uh, be beyond the uh, surgical issues and learning curve, obviously, of surgeons. Um, there was nothing else that uh, we could, you know, observe any uh, adverse ev events or effects. And uh, most importantly, the residual acuity, natural residual acuity, did not decrease in any of the patients. Uh, in fact, it actually slightly increased in all of them, but maybe it's just because they learn to better fixate now and so on. So because they go through rehabilitation, they basically learn to use the device, and maybe as a part of this benefit, they actually learn to better use their peripheral vision as well. But um, so no reduction in natural vision, that was one of the key questions that uh, we were asked by FDA and the European Approval Committee. And um, uh, no, the chip was stable as soon as it was reattached and after that it didn't move. Uh, there was no like fibrosis or gliosis forming. In fact, now we have 24 months follow-up and the, and the thresholds and the performance are only improving. Uh, obviously, they cannot improve beyond the pixel size, but at least they are getting to the point where they're all almost at the same level, only 10% uh, uh, below that single pixel uh, resolution and very, very producible in every patient. So I, I, I want to ask a, a question that I think that, that, you, that you answered. I just want to spell it out in a different way. Did the perceived resolution of the patients correspond to the pixel resolution of the chip, as in were, were patients able to distinguish the stimulation of, of a, a single pixel? Well, so the way we assess the resolution is we ask them what you see, right? Do you see a letter? What is that letter, right? So their vision, even though we have pixels in the array, obviously, and photoreceptors, by the way, also pixels in a sense, right? Uh, they, the, the perception is not pixelated. The perception is continuous patterns that correspond to patterns we present. Like if you ask, what do you see without telling them? And they tell you that's a letter P and you, can you draw me? They draw letter P and so on. So it, they don't see dot by dot. And that's what, not what we are asking. We are asking, can you resolve this line, right? And we make it narrow and narrow. Can you tell us which way this letter C 
uh, is oriented or which letter it is in the chart and they read. So th that's how the vision is assessed. It's not pixelated like point by point. And we are not asking, do you see a single pixel? We present a picture and ask if they can resolve it. Now, there's, there's a lot going on with this system. There are spectacles that are, that are taking in an image, processing it, converting it to, to near infrared light, which is then perceived by the uh, chip and, and is signaled to the, the neurology of the, of the retina. Is there a perceptible lag in the in in the signal as in if the patient moves his head does the image follow uh, no uh, we don't do complicated image processing exactly for this reason the complicated image processing would involve uh, significant computational time and may introduce this delay very uncomfortable because we want patients to simultaneously see the world in natural vision by fellow eye, first of all, and then uh, periphery of the implanted eye and the chip. Therefore, our processing is very simple at this stage. As I mentioned, it's just contrast enhancement or maybe zooming, so it doesn't take computational time. By the way, in all the tests of acuity that I mentioned, we didn't have any zoom used. It was one-to-one -one exactly because we want to see the real, amplification, uh, real uh, performance, but the second generation of glasses actually has a zoom function now available and patients in some tasks we ask them to use it to their you know convenient the level of con uh, convenience and they can choose to what extent they want to magnify and we see that their resolution is increasing exactly linearly with the zoom level so they can now instead of uh, oh by the way the numbers i didn't mention that the theoretical limit with 100 pixel 100 micrometer pixel on the retina corresponds to visual acuity of about 20 over 420. So that's what they have uh, approximately. Now, uh, in red, by the way, we already have pixels of 50 microns working, so it's equivalent of 2200. And we are working on pixels, three dimensional pixels of uh, 20 uh, micron in size, which would correspond to 2080 acuity if everything goes well. But uh, coming back to magnification, so patients now can use magnification. And if, for example, you use magnification to X, they read the line that corresponds to uh, 20 uh, over 250 approximately, right? That is, would be impossible without Zoom. And that, in fact, a, a very convenient feature for us to check if they read with prosthetic vision or natural, because we can put them in front of a chart and ask them to read, you know, to the best of their ability naturally. And we know which line they, you know, they can read. And then we can turn on prosthetic vision and start increasing zoom. And they start reading lower and lower line. The other control we do is that we can switch the contrast because we have image processing. So for example, they're looking at the chart of black letters on white background. And we switch electronically without telling them the prosthetic vision will be white letters on black background. And then we ask them, what color do you read? And so we can tell if they are, what they're using, if, if it's augmented reality glasses. But uh, to be very clean in all of these tests, we actually did all the tests uh, in a published version you know, of the study with virtual reality glasses. So all the uh, peripheral vision is completely blocked. They see nothing but the screen. And then there is no question. All they see is prosthetic. So, uh, so then we don't have to 
we still ask the color of the percept and stuff like that, but uh, we don't allow peripheral vision. In a new test, when you have both normal and prosthetic, then you have to make sure that you have enough controls that you know that they use prosthetic vision. Now, I want to come back to something that you mentioned at the very start of the conversation, because it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. Um, there are two... Um, two issues with regard to resolution of the chip. One is the photoreceptor, I don't know what the right term is, the pixel density on the chip, but the other one is the electrode spacing of the uh, chip. And you had mentioned uh, at the very start that, that the way that um, the chip signals the bipolar cells is by establishing a, a field what what is the resolution of the field and is this ultimately a a limitation to this sort of technology yes this is absolutely a limitation it's like a camera if you have a camera with x number of pixels it is limiting your resolution you cannot zoom indefinitely at some point you will start seeing pixels right um and so the better the camera, the higher the resolution. Or same with the screen and iPhone, they, they became better and better with generations, right? Uh, so yes, absolutely. The sampling density of your pixel array is one of the limiting factors. And we have electrode in every pixel. So basically the field resolution, we try to keep the same as a pixel resolution, resolution of your sensors. Um, and it's not trivial, by the way, because if you put many electrodes uh, together and activate them simultaneously, electric fields adapt. And they can smear, it's called crosstalk, they smear the picture because neighboring electrodes are fighting as well. So we actually uh, uh, control this by providing a local return electrodes like fences surrounding each pixel. So electric fields are very confined, like little fountains in front of each pixel. Uh, but if you wouldn't do it, and some implants actually that were tried before by other companies didn't have this feature, and then you very quickly lose resolution and you have thousands, you know, hundreds of pixels, or thousands firing together this common return electrode, you get very low contrast. So in our case, the contrast is high because each pixel has both active and return electrode in, in itself. And so we match electrically what we capture optically. You know, this is wonderful, fantastic uh, stuff. What are your next steps? So the next step is uh, from my perspective at Stanford, where we develop this technology, is to push the limit, at, uh, to push the resolution to its limit. And we are exploring where is that limit. So uh, by designing electrodes now in a three dimensions rather than planar array, we can shape electric field vertically so they match it matches the orientation of bipolar cell, which is vertical and right now. And this way, the threshold is significantly reduced, so we need less light. And we can scale pixels down to dimensions, cellular dimensions. We are making pixels of 20 microns, but we are actually exploring even 10 microns. So 10 micron pixel is a single cell size. Uh, sum of bipolar cells is about 10 microns. So, uh, with 20 micron pixels, we hope to achieve 2100 acuity. We actually already made chips, first generation of chips with the size. And because of coronavirus, we actually stopped, but we were supposed to implant them in red and check acuity, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, 
but um, yeah, we will also explore the 10 microchips where it's single cell and with that if it works there will be additional possibilities opening up such as restoration of color vision because it requires single cell selectivity i would maybe bring to your attention or attention of listeners a very important aspect of this technology development in general not even for retinal prosthetic the technology available is made available to patients by companies and companies have to uh, operate in uh, for profit uh, there is a limited you know span of investment that they can leave on borrowed money but they have to get to the profitability or they will cease to exist and two first companies in this field uh, uh, second site in retina implant AG, one in California, the other in Germany, they ba both failed to achieve that threshold and they basically stopped the operation. So I hope that with our approach that uh, we address much bigger market AMD rather than retinitis pigmentosa, but we have much higher threshold of expectations to make it really clinically meaningful. The acuity should be good enough for these patients to for many of the patients to use, which means acuity should be much better than 2400 that we currently, you know, demonstrate. That's one of the very important challenges. We race against time, so to say, to reach meaningful improvement uh, with, uh, that will allow many patients to use it before we run out of money, so to say, right? So that's, uh, it is common threat for all technological companies and, you know, in general, in medicine in particular, uh, and in our case, uh, for restoration of sight in AMD, is to reach that level of performance where it is meaningful improvement for many patients. Daniel, this, this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's, you know, like science fiction. Um, I, you, you, you've been fantastically generous with your time. I just want to thank you. Absolutely. Daniel Palinker is professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and director of the Hansen Experimental Physics Laboratory at Stanford University in Stanford, California. His paper, Photovoltaic Restoration of Central Vision in Atrophic Age-Related Macular Degeneration, is in press in ophthalmology. Here's some information about the technology described in this podcast. It is being commercialized by Pixum Vision, a French company that licenses it from Stanford University. The name of the implant is PRIMA, P-R-I-M-A, which stands for Photovoltaic Retinal Implant. Ask questions of Dr. Palenker or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.